This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, before we get into today's episode, I just got to point out something. Hey, I'm not just wearing a plain black V-neck. I know some people are like, hey, Kyle, you know, we can get you another shirt. And I'm just going to tell you, they make more than one black V-neck, okay? So I own multiples, but today I am sporting one of our very own Undaunted Life t-shirts. So some of you have been asking about merch for a very, very long time, and then you didn't go out and buy a shirt. Well, I can just assure you guys that we do have a shop up on our website now. So if you want this shirt, we basically have this shirt right here. And I don't know if you can see, I'm, I'm just going to turn around here. People that aren't on YouTube are like, what What just happened? I just turned around. I don't even know if you could see my shirt, so we'll figure it out and post edit. But that is the Pushback Darkness t-shirt. But we also have rash guards. So the rash guards are awesome. They're very much so like this t-shirt, but then they kind of have like an American flag thing going on on the sleeves. Shout out to the guys at Nearfall for putting that together for us. So if you want to check those out, just go to www.undaunted.life backslash shop, and that will be in the show notes. But let's go ahead and get into today's episode. So as many of you know by now, I was on the Phil Jason Al Robertson podcast. So that is the Unashamed podcast is with the Blaze Network. And it's it's usually one of the top two or three Christian podcasts out there, depending upon when the episodes are released or whatever. Um, and pretty much it was such a cool experience. And that's what I'm going to go into today. I'm going to go into the experience of what it was like to be on the show, what it was like to be around that family, be around those people. Because I've been asked about it at nauseam, and so I'm like, okay, I, I need to just go ahead and explain my experience and kind of what went down. So I guess the easiest way to start would be just like, how in the world did I get on that show? That's the number one question I'm getting is like, how did you make this happen? Well, without going into a too terribly much of the detail, it all started with Taya Kyle. So Taya Kyle was a guest on our podcast earlier this year. We did a two-part series with her, and you know, we've... We are just so indebted to Taya for so many things behind the scenes that I'll leave personal because of our friendship. But she introduced me to somebody who introduced me to another somebody who then thought it would be a very, very good idea to get me on this show. So that's kind of the without all the details and I'm I'm not being cryptic for cryptic sake, but it's just, you know, Taya Kyle really saw a lot of potential in the show, but she also saw a lot of potential in you guys. And she used the term, I, I can't remember if she said it on the show, but just rugged Christians, this rugged Christianity and how we need to kind of bring that back. And she sees this show as a conduit through which we can do something like that. So she's done what she can to kind of elevate the profile of what we're doing. And then obviously that crescendoed with my appearance on Phil, Jason, Al's show. And so that was kind of how I got on the show. But, you know, basically, um, I don't live that far away from West Monroe, Louisiana. And so we decided whenever we were putting this together that, hey, I would actually go down there and be interviewed in person. And so my wife and I decided, okay, let's, let's make it a little vacation, a little road trip. And so we hadn't taken a road trip yet with sweet baby James. So our 14 month old, we just kind of packed up and we kind of broke up the drive on the way down there, you know, saw some, some family on the way and then kind of did those things. But then we made our way all the way to West Monroe, Louisiana, which is about eight and a half hours from my front door, essentially. But one of the cool things, Things about getting there when we did is I actually got a text message from Al Robertson, so one of the hosts of the show, and um, Phil and Kay Robinson's uh, Robertson's oldest son, eldest son, 
he actually wanted us to come over and do dinner with their family the night before the recording of the podcast. And so we're like, yeah, yeah, of course we'll come over and hang out with you guys. And it was so, it was so weird because you walked in and you saw a bunch of people that you recognize from television. So you got Al there and then everybody's favorite crazy uncle, uncle Cy. My wife actually sat next to Cy whenever we were eating ribs and everything else for dinner. John Goodwin was there or Godwin rather. Um, and so it was just kind of a cool experience to be around those folks. And again, these are salt of the earth people, right? These are, you know, we had mentioned it at several times when we were doing dinner. It's just like, man, y'all are our people. And they said the same thing to us. And it's just because there's no pretension. There's, there's no like pretending to be something that we're not. You're just there having a good time with people that are just good people. And the guy that was actually on the podcast just before me, he's a world champion arm wrestler. He was there, him and his wife were both there and he's got COVID right now. And I guess he's not doing too terribly well. So I want to make sure that we, we pray for him, but yeah, you know, kind of a, kind of a crazy situation, but it was just such a a neat thing for our family to do because we got to see our son interact with uh, the daughters of the family and they were all very very nice and accommodating and caring for for baby James and you know we kept him up past his bedtime so that we could have a little bit of extra fun but it was just a very very unique experience getting to hang out with them the night before and and part of the thing that that does is it, it makes you more comfortable with somebody because I've walked into interviews or walked into presentations before where I didn't get any interaction time with the people that I was talking to beforehand, like none. And so I'm not a terribly like nerve wracked person to begin with, but you do want to kind of get a feel for people like, Hey, are these people, do they have a sense of humor or do they get angry and offended easily? Or are they more aloof uh, during conversations? Do they kind of move around and not really pay attention? You want to kind of figure those things out because it's going to affect how you talk with them and how you interact in those situations. But all I can say is I just got even more excited after spending that evening with them and spending several hours with that family. I just got even more excited about doing this interview because it's like, okay, these are normal people. They're just as they seem. So let's kind of get this going. So let's roll into the day of the recording of the interview. So just to kind of give you a little bit of my mindset, I was a little worried going into this interview because I didn't know what it was going to be like to be around Phil specifically. And a lot of the things today that we're going to be talking about are going to kind of center on Phil as this, this patriarchal man, man's man, you know, type of a thing. But I, he just has one of those personalities where he's, you're not sure if he's going to like you, I guess. And that doesn't, I don't mean by any stretch of the imagination mean to say that, oh, he's mean or he's rude or he's, he's unnecessarily biting. He's certainly none of those things. And none of that came through on the show, but he's just a, a more so of a quiet guy, seemingly an introspective type of guy. And I didn't get to hang out with Phil prior to the interview. So basically I was just going to walk into the studio, throw on the headphones and go, and you know, was going to essentially not get very much time with him beforehand. And so I was, I was a little bit concerned about that because I didn't know how that would completely work out. But on the day of, you know, we're, we're going out there and a member of his team came out and picked me up and he was taking me out to Phil's house uh, because where the podcast studio is in his shop, which is on his land. And so it was raining cats and dogs on the way down there. But then we finally did get to Phil's shop and it's just like you would expect any other shop. Like there's nothing special about it. Everything inside of there was covered in, in dirt and had a purpose and all those different things. And I was able to kind of sneak in there in the previous podcast and got to see them kind of wrap up. But there was kind of a cool thing that happened at the end of their, their interview when they, when they were talking with this world champion arm wrestler. This is when they had already done the ads and, you know, we're, we're coming off air and, you know, this is all off air. But Phil just kind of looks at the rest of the room and, you know, size there and Al's there. And, you know, it's just kind of one of those deals. And he goes, man, I just, where are all the men? I feel like the men have just disappeared. And what's funny is Al Robertson looks over at me in the corner and says, well, 
that guy's about to talk about it with us. And, you know, Phil kind of looks over there like, oh, that guy. Okay, yeah, let's make this happen. So that kind of made me more comfortable with the situation because I was like, okay, like there, there is a thirst for the topic that we're going to be talking about. There's certainly an idea as to kind of where we're going to be going with this conversation. But with me, I'd rather just kind of walk in and flow. Like when I'm being interviewed, I don't want to know the questions. I don't really even know what you want to talk about. I just want to go with it and kind of see where we end up. So I thought that was kind of a cool thing because you could tell that Phil was primed for that conversation. And for any of you wondering, I haven't mentioned Jace yet. Jace was actually out. Uh, he was doing some speaking gig for this trucking company, you know, out in South Carolina or something like that. So he wasn't there, but hopefully we can get back there and have a conversation with Jace. But then we did the podcast and it was such a fun time because it was just Phil and Al and me. And Al had really looked at some of our content and some of our things that we had put out there, especially the latest devotional and the, the live performance of that, where I was basically talking about what it ta- takes to make a godly and manly foxhole to build those things. And so I think he really took a liking to the content and that showed in some of his questions, but we really just kind of flowed. And we just flowed with scripture that we knew and we all had our Bibles out and and we're quoting from, from things here or there, but you could tell that they were both very, very interested in this concept, but they were also very taken aback by the fact that I was such a young guy talking about these things because we kind of kicked off starting, you know, talking trash about millennials and all that. And Hey, I'm cool with all that. We, we started that off air and I was like, Hey, let's go ahead and hit record. Let's get this conversation going. And so Phil's like, Hey, what is up with with these 30 year olds? And you know, what, what is up with these people? Why are they doing these things? So that's kind of where it started, but you could tell that they just, they're not used to these types of opinions and this type of thought process from someone that's my age. And that's kind of well-earned on, on some millennials. You know, some of the bad rap that we get is something that we haven't earned, but we've certainly earned that. But, you know, we do the podcast. I think the conversation went incredibly, incredibly well. We'll put a link in the show notes so that you can judge for yourself. And if you didn't enjoy it, just don't tell me. I don't really care, but it's just one of those things. I really, really enjoyed the time. Yeah, I got a little gift for, for Phil and for Al. And, you know, it's, it's a book that I'll kind of keep that between us. But it was a book that I thought that each one of them uh, would gain some value from, you know, based on some of the things I know about their personalities. So it went really, really well. But then afterwards, I was invited back to Phil and Miss Kay's house for a bit. And so it's like, great. Yeah, I'd love to meet Miss Kay. And that was kind of a cool experience. So we drive back through the woods and we pull up on this property and we go inside. And I think Al was telling me on the way in, he's like, hey, this is the same house that they moved into in the 70s. So even though they've made, you know, millions of dollars and they have this big, you know, platform and all these different things, they're living in the same house, the same exact house that all the kids grew up in, right? just normal salt of the earth people. So I go inside the house and there's Miss Kay. And, you know, I, I kind of, I don't know, is she a hugger? Like, I assume she's a hugger. And I go for the handshake and she just kind of comes in with a full hug. And I was like, yes, I really wanted to hug Miss Kay. So that's what we did. And, you know, she immediately turns into host and she goes and gets me uh, this this biscuit and she brings me something called Mayha jelly. And I hope I'm saying that right. But apparently how it was explained to me is that's like a fruit that is in that area of the country, you know, Bayou, you know, Louisiana, Northern Louisiana type area or something. And it, it's only only it's only comes out of the trees like three weeks out of the year or something like that. I'm still trying to piece together the story, but then there's not much you can do with that fruit before it all goes bad. And so they just make a ton of jelly out of it. So she brings me like this biscuit with this Mayha jelly and it was so tart and so sweet and so delicious. And so I was like, Oh, okay. Now I'm being fed by Miss K. And then she brings me, you know, this peach and you know, she sends me home with some peaches because sweet baby James and, and my wife, Kelsey, weren't able to actually be in the studio at the time. Cause we thought James might freak out and start crying and pooping all over himself. And so we were just, it was such a cool thing that they were still thinking about Kelsey and thinking about my son. And and it was just a very, very fun time to spend with them. 
I sat in the living room. It was just me and Phil and Miss Kay, and we just sat there, and they were just kind of talking. And then Miss Kay got up and went and talked to Al somewhere else in the house. And it was just me and Phil sitting there, and we he was just kind of telling me some stories. And I was just sitting there like, I just wanted to sponge it all up because I knew it would be weird if I pulled my phone out and like started taking notes or something like that. So it's like, okay, I just want to internalize these stories and, and kind of remember them because I felt like I was learning a lot of lessons from this guy because Phil seems to be one of those guys that has tangible, direct wisdom right? He's telling you, Hey, I'm about to give you some wisdom right here, son. And then there's other times where it's like, there's kind of that accidental wisdom where it's like, just by virtue of how you've led your life and how God has formed you, you're going to be giving wisdom to people. But the thing that was interesting is from the moment I left that situation and we're on our road back from West Monroe to Oklahoma city, Edmond, Oklahoma city. And I just kept thinking about the lessons that I learned from my time being around Phil Robertson. Okay. And you could, I guess, extend this out to the lessons I learned just spending time with the Robertson family and the extended family, the friends that, that were over there the night before. But I really wanted to break this down into a few categories to make this tangible and really sticky for you guys. So the three categories in terms of the manhood lessons I learned with my time with Phil Robertson is the time spent with his books, right? Because I read a couple of his books before I went out there and saw them. The time spent with him in person, right? You know, actually seeing him and, and interacting with him, just, you know, mano a mano or in the same small group and then time spent observing. So time spent with his books, time spent in person and time spent observing. So let's go ahead and start with the time spent with his books, because I wanted to make sure I read a couple of his books because it's like, okay, I've heard him speak. I, I've watched the show, but I wonder whenever he sits down alone at a computer or you know, whoever's, you know, kind of helping maybe type it up or whatever the thing is when it's just him and his thoughts, what are the thoughts? So the two books I read were The Theft of America's Soul and Jesus Politics. So I want to first talk about The Theft of America's Soul. And the subtitle is Blowing the Lid Off the Lies that are Destroying That Are Destroying Our Country. And the first lesson I guess I learned is that the lie, quote unquote, the lie, is almost always more attractive than the truth. Right? And I think we, we know that, but when someone says it, and, and that's one of the things about whenever you read Phil Robertson's writings, is it sounds like him talking, right? So he's not going to blow you away with all this bloviating language and all this, you know, flowery words. Like he he gets to the point, right? So he, he you're not going to expect, you know, a C.S. Lewis or a Thomas Sowell or a Jordan Peterson level of like, you know, off the wall intellect, but still incredibly smart wisdom, right? But the thing that's interesting is about the chapters about this book. So in the chapter, in the chapters, each one of them talks about a specific lie and the specific truth. So I want to go ahead and read the chapter titles here. So this is again, the chapters from the theft of America's soul. Chapter one, the lie, God is dead. The truth, the God of the Bible is not dead and he never will be. Chapter two, the lie, there is no devil. The truth, the devil of the Bible is real and he is our enemy. Chapter three, the lie, the truth is relative. The truth. There is absolute truth and it comes from God. Chapter four, the lie. God did not create life. The truth. God is the author of life and only he can nourish and sustain it. Chapter five, the lie. Sex is for self-gratification. The truth. God created sexuality for his purposes and our good. Chapter six, the lie. Virtue is outdated. The truth. God's standard for all time is the standard of virtue. Chapter seven, the lie. Laws can be ignored or changed if they are inconvenient. The truth. Law and order come from the word of God. Chapter 8. The lie. Unity is not possible. The truth. Unity flows from a God-centered culture. Chapter 9. The lie. Church participation and day-to-day life should be kept separate. The truth. The church is God's presence in the day-to-day world, keeping the world from becoming hell on earth. 
in the last one, chapter 10, the lie. Christians should shut their traps. The truth, God's people are his prophetic voice in the world. And so when you're going through that, you're looking at all these huge topics, right? Each one of those chapters could have been a book in and of itself, but he kind of brings it in there as kind of a summary of these ideas that really are kind of fighting at the ties of what's going on in our country. Something that I literally talk about on this podcast all the time, and I usually come at it from more of a cultural perspective, like, look, we are coming apart at the seams as a country, and it's because of all these different crazy ideologies. And so hearing it put so poignantly, right, and so simply in this book, was very, very refreshing. And so that was a a big lesson that I learned, a big manhood lesson that I felt like I took from this. And the second one from that book specifically, from the theft of American, the American, the theft of the American soul. There you go. The second one that I thought was good. And I think I messed up the title again. It's the theft of America's soul. All right, Kyle, get it together. Let's move on. We're all doing this here together. We're doing this live. The next one is the gospel message is always appropriate to share. The gospel message is always appropriate to share. So one thing, if you listen to the Unashamed podcast or if you listen into any of his talks or, or things like that, he's constantly sharing the gospel with people. He's constantly challenging people with the gospel message up to and including the president, the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. Spent several times, you know, I think he spent two or three times with Trump basically talking to him about the gospel. But in chapter seven of this book, he's talking about where he was asked by the warden of the Angola prison in Louisiana to come and be a guest and to interact with the inmates. Now, Angola prison, from what I understand, used to be one of the most rough prisons of the rough prisons in the United States. Most of these people are there and they're going to die there right? This is a serious maximum security prison. And the warden kind of wanted to bring in more scripture and really kind of take care of of these guys in a different way. But I loved how Phil described his time there. And so I'm going to go ahead and read you a quote here from chapter seven of the theft of America's soul. There, nailed it. Gotcha. Here's a quote. There in front of the roughest crowd I'd ever seen, I told those men I knew why they were there. They were murderers, rapists, thieves. They were the ones who disobeyed God's laws, had broken the Ten Commandments, that served as the basis of American law. And this is great here. I love this. Gentlemen, this is the end of the line for most of you, I said. Most of you are going to die in this prison, but I have some good news for you. You can be under lock and key, but you can still be free. I went on to share the good news to that group, told them if they renounced their law-breaking ways and followed Christ, they could be set free from the sin and shame of their heinous acts. What's more, they could have eternal life. I closed my gospel presentation and the men were dismissed. The warden brought in another group, then another. I shared the good news of Jesus with every man who came through those chapel doors. And when I was finished, the warden brought me more good news. Some of those killers on death row, the ones who weren't permitted out of their cells, had heard my little sermon. The warden had streamed it through speakers into their cells. Some of those men, the vilest of all lawbreakers, heard the news. They could have a clean start as far as God was concerned. In the days after I visited, I'd come to find out that more than a few men had accepted the good news. They'd come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and had been baptized in one of the irrigation lakes there at Angola. Their law-breaking records had been wiped clean in the eyes of the Almighty. They'd been set free, even if they couldn't avoid the consequences of their actions. Even if some of them might be executed for their crimes, when they awoke to the afterlife, they would be in heavenly eternity. So, That is just an incredible lesson that I learned from Phil is that he never shies away from sharing the gospel. Again, whether he's meeting with the president of the United States or at the time he met with him, he was going to try to be the president. This was during the primaries. Or if he's in prison with murderers and rapists, 
He's always sharing the gospel. That, that may have been the biggest impact that, that I had in terms of reading his stuff before I went out there was this dude is always, always sharing the gospel. Now let's go to the second book that I mentioned, and that's Jesus Politics. The subtitle of that is How to Win Back the Soul of America. So this was the book that was written right before the theft of America's soul. And so there's a lot of kind of through points that he kind of takes and carries into that book. But the first lesson that I really pulled from that is that Christians should legislate their morality. Let me repeat that. Christians should legislate their morality. Because you hear from people all the time, like, don't legislate morality, like, that's ridiculous. But as most people have pointed out, a lot of smart people have pointed out, is like everybody is legislating their morality. We just have differing opinions as to what the best morality is, what the most appropriate morality is. So I'm going to go ahead and read you a quote from the introduction of this book. Yes, in our delusion, we've decided we're capable of governing ourselves without reference to the policies of King Jesus, policies established in love. And man-made laws based on our finite judgments have only ever led us astray. There's good news, though. As followers of Christ, we've been given the antidote to America's soul sickness. What's the antidote? Jesus politics. In this book, we'll explore the problems facing America and the king's policies as to each of those problems. I'll offer the king's declarations about those problems and the declarations that make up his kingdom manifesto. Then I'll share how you can use your vote to advance the kingdom manifesto. And then a little bit later in the intro, it says this. So no matter what side of the political aisle you choose, you know this. If you are a member of this kingdom, King Jesus makes demands of your life. This includes the political candidates you support, the political groups you give your money to, and the votes you cast. So as for me and my house, we donate to pro-life and pro-religious liberty policy groups, cast our votes for those who side with and advance the politics of the king, Share the good news of the king with the people in our lives in the hope that they might become members of the kingdom and might use their voices and votes for King Jesus. Okay? That, that is something that is so, so important because so many of us have gotten into this idea that we need to keep our Christian heritage. We need to keep our Christian morality to ourselves. That, that's for us. You know, we, we, let's just live and let live. You know, we're not going to really bother you. You don't really bother us. And that's not the mandate. And you especially see that when Christians don't want to engage in the political realm. And I've talked about people on this podcast before, the people that I respect deeply that don't want to engage in politics. They don't want to engage in culture, but that is where the fight is taking place. And that is where the gospel is needed, maybe more so than anywhere else on the planet, right? So that's the first lesson that I learned from that book. And the next one was that this, and this really goes into the last part of that intro that I read, it's that Christians should vote for kingdom values. You should use your vote. When Christians are just like, I'm not even going to vote. I'm not even going to be in the political process. What does it matter anyway? It's, you know, we're all going to heaven and, you know, it's the, it's the gospel message. That's what we need to be focused on. But your values are bringing glory to God. And in our modern context, especially in the West, it's our government that perpetuates values and spreads them across all kinds of people. So there's a quote near the end of the book, and it says this, it's Jesus politics, the kingdom manifesto in action. It says this, and these are great. These are all good things to live by. Vote for leaders who will protect capitalism, the system that best allows people to direct their money towards kingdom causes. Vote for leaders who will promote religious liberty, protect our rights to practice Christianity in every public square, and who live lives aligned with Jesus' politics. Vote for leaders who seek to preserve gun rights while offering kingdom-based solutions to the anger that's tearing this country apart. Vote for leaders who elevate their creator over creation, who don't use environmental hype to create fear and procure power. Vote for leaders who advance the policies of life, the policies of the king, and look for opportunities to serve women with unexpected or unwanted pregnancies with the truth from the king for their circumstances. 
Vote for leaders who cling to the biblical view of the family, who promote policies designed to strengthen families instead of destroy them, then promote organizations that do the same. Vote for leaders who protect the medical system from godless politicians. Get involved in your community to help provide the medical needs of those around you. Demand that our leaders reflect the character of Jesus, that they extend forgiveness and pave the way for meaningful political debate instead of continual partisan bickering. Speak out against ungodly laws and serve your fellow man. Call people to repent and join the king whose law is always love. Live your lives in a manner worthy of the king in a way that invites others into the kingdom in the hopes of winning back the soul of America. So guys, again, I spent a lot of time with his writings before I went in there to that interview. And that's just kind of an encapsulation of some of the things that I really, really took from it. And there's a lot more. Don't worry, I will have those books in the show notes for you. But then I want to transition to the time that I spent with him specifically in person. And again, I don't want to, you know, diminish the time that I spent with anybody else that was there. But again, he he's the main guy, right? And they were that was kind of the main guy they wanted to get me connected with. So I want to talk about my time spent in person with Phil Robertson. The first thing that I learned is that there is power in using someone's name. And I keep saying this is the thing that I've learned. A lot of these things I already knew, but it was just reinforced in a major way. But there is power in using someone's name. From the moment I walked into the studio, even before I put my hand in his hand and shook his hand and and introduced myself, he referred to me by name. Hey, Kyle, I got a question for you. Kyle, that's a good point. And that that continued even when we went back to his house. Now, Kyle, let me tell you a story about such and such and -and so-and-so. He used my name. And as you know, when someone uses your name, you, you feel better, right? Like It's like, oh, this person's valuing me enough to remember my name. And that's another reminder to me. I'm really bad with names, right? And I have been in the past. I've tried to come up with some different mnemonic devices or different things to help me remember names, but it's been one of those things that have been a struggle for me. And I know that people notice sometimes when I'm struggling to remember their name, and I know that that feel makes them feel diminished in a way. And so I don't want to do that. And this was a good reminder to you know make sure that I can figure out a way to be better at that. Another lesson from the time that I spent in person with Phil is that you don't have to speak loudly or often to make an impact. Okay. Now, this is going to hit a lot of you in the teeth because it does for me as well. Most of the time you think in order to make an impact, you have to say the thing in the loudest way possible, whether you're talking in person or you're saying it on Twitter or you're saying it, whatever. You got to say it loudly, right? I need everyone to hear me. Everybody pay attention because I'm so smart, right? But also you got to talk all the time, right? You can't let a single thing go past you without voicing your opinion in the loudest way possible. And that is the exact opposite of how Phil comports himself. because. I've never actually heard him speak loudly. I'm sure he has, right? Especially whenever he details, you know, his past life and some of the sinful things that he was a part of. I'm sure he has, but he doesn't. And even when you listen to the show, he picks his spots, right? If you listen to the normal show, you know, Jason Hour seemingly do most of the talking. But when Phil breaks in, everybody's paying attention. And he has a tremendous impact on people without being bombastic. And that was a great lesson that I learned from Phil. Another lesson that I learned from spending time with him is that there is power in story. And again, I, I knew these things, but I was constantly on the edge of my seat. Like I was literally on the edge of his seat, you know, in his living room. And as he's telling me these stories about people that, you know, would call the duck call shop, right? This was early on before the television show. And they'd, you know, be cussing up a storm on the phone, you know, just in normal conversation. And then he would challenge them and say, do you know you're blaspheming the God that created you? And these people getting all huffy and puffy and people driving from two states away to come meet him at his property to have this conversation about Jesus. And, you know, he's telling me this story and it's like, 
man, and, I, and I've read that story before, that specific story, and it's just like there's so much power in a story, and especially... And if you're not from the, the South of the United States, it, that's seemingly something that is a very Southern thing, right? So, you know, you, your grandpa or your great uncle or something like that, perhaps they haven't spent as much time, you know, marinating themselves and all these intellectual writings and different things like that. Maybe they can't quote Shakespeare or anything, but they have so much wisdom to, you know, give you just from stories. From from their personal experiences growing up, even if some of them kind of border are borderline tall tales, it's one of those interesting things is there's such an amazing amount of power in story. And the last thing I'll say in terms of what I learned from spending time with Phil in person is that truly manly men don't have to flaunt their manliness. Truly manly men don't have to flaunt it. And that's one thing that I try to remind people, especially when I'm speaking live, because I never want to come off as the guy that's speaking and saying, okay, if you don't drive a four wheel drive truck, if you don't have boots, if you don't have a beard, if you don't have muscles, if you don't drink whiskey, if you don't, you know, whatever, you know, on and on and on that, you know, you're not a man because I try to always draw that line between actual biblical manhood and caricature manhood, Western American caricature manhood. Right. And that's kind of the thing is most of the time you're seen as a manly man. If you've got big muscles and you're always wearing a cutoff shirt, right? You're flaunting it, right? Maybe you're really good at a particular sport and you're constantly posting videos of you doing that sport and and how good you look at it, right? You're constantly showing people pictures of your, your truck or, you know, this, this animal you took down. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things. Unless inside your heart, you're trying to flaunt some sort of manliness quality where the, it'll make the women swoon and all the other men be jealous, right? So it's kind of one of those things. But Phil Robertson doesn't have to flaunt a thing. He's been very open about who he was in his early life until Jesus snatched him up out of that life. He was a rough dude, right? Getting drunk, you know, I, just messing around on, on Miss Kay and not being a good father, not being a present father. He, he's been very open about those things in his writings and in his speeches, right? But you would think after he turned his life around that it would still be something like he would feel the need to flaunt his manliness, but he's not flaunting anything. He just is a godly and manly man. It's, it's just weaved into who he is as a person. He just so happens to be into hunting. He just so happens to be a business owner. He just so happens to have a beard, but none of those things. And he wouldn't say any of those things define him as a man, right? He's a man because this is a guy that cultivates spiritual, mental, and physical resilience daily. He's in his 70s, and he looks way better and is moving around way better than people maybe 20 years younger than him, right? So just an amazing thing to be around, a guy like that that's so soft-spoken and yet so manly. And in this last section, uh, last section here before we let you go is I want to kind of tell you about the lessons that I learned in, in the times that I spent just observing Phil Robertson, right? So in the times when I wasn't directly in his presence, but I was just kind of watching him or watching what was going on around him. So the first thing is this, he is a true American patriarch and patriot. Because that was one of the things whenever I was kind of getting prepared to go out there and do this whole podcast and everything, I'm like, this is one of America's great patriarchs. Now, it was a television show on A&E that kind of, you know, springboarded his, his family into prominence. But you got the sense when you're around him that he would be doing and saying the exact same things today had the show never happened. And and if duck commander and all these other things had never blown up, he would be doing and saying the same things. And as I've heard him say before, and I love this quote, he said, the only thing that's changed about him and his family is the menu. And you're like the menu. He's like, yeah, used to, we ate the bad parts of the cow. Now we've made enough money and we're comfortable enough to where we can eat the good parts of the cow. Right. 
He's just such a patriotic man that he spent so much time thinking and praying about what was going on inside the United States and what he could do to change it that he wrote multiple books on it. And he's got another book that I got to hear about, which you know I can't really talk about on air, but the book that's going to be released next year is going to go even further into this. Because I got the sense that, you know, after Trump lost the election because apparently Joe Biden got 80 million votes, you know, a dead guy got 80 million votes. Apparently that's a thing that actually happened. But he, he, it seemed like he maybe pulled back a little bit from some of the more public things he was doing in this area. But I think this book is almost his uh, attention grabber back to the American public. Like, hey, this is still the direction that we need to be headed. And here are some of the issues that I'm seeing. But he's spending so much time thinking about these things that even though he's in the latter stages of his life, right, he's in his 70s, he doesn't have probably, you know, 100 years left in front of him, right? He's still spending a lot of time trying to impart his wisdom on other people and to the good of America. So I think that's amazing. And another thing that I learned just from time observing Phil Robertson is that he has the authentic respect of those around him, even if they're not around him, okay? And so what I mean by that is the night before when we were having dinner over at Al Robertson's house and, you know, kind of interacting with those people, everybody was still talking about Phil and everyone kind of had a Phil story or a philosophy, you know, right, you know, forgive the pun, but like they were talking about those things and they were talking about it with kind of an air of reverence and respect, not like, oh, you know, they they were scared of him or something like that, but it's like, they just respect the man so deeply, right? And whenever he would talk. When, when other people are talking, you know, you're kind of doing this, you know, kind of round table thing. Whenever he would start talking, everybody just kind of tuned in. And I remember I'm reminded when Jordan Peterson talks about whenever he's giving presentations, if he sees people kind of fidgeting in the crowd or looking around or pulling out their phones or something like that, he knows that he's not really connecting with them, but he knows he's really, really hitting the mark when everybody is just staring at him and they're still. And I feel like I got to see a little bit of that on a micro sense that whenever Phil spoke, people automatically perked up and started paying attention. Because I don't get the sense that Phil just talks to hear himself talk. He talks when it's necessary. So I thought that that was great to see that he has the authentic respect of those people around him. And as a man, as a Christian man, you should kind of want the same thing for you as well, right? And then I guess the next thing that I would say is that he is ridiculously humble. Like, ridiculously humble. And this man has every reason to not be humble. Okay, because just by virtue of the fact that you have money in the United States or, or anywhere in the world, if you have money, you don't have to be humble. And a lot of people will forgive you, right? I mean, the thing is, is like if the if the guy with the nicest car that lives in the nicest house and has the biggest, most expensive watch, if he's a little bit of a douche, most some of us are like, ah, you know, I get it. You yak that way, but I, dude, you're worth tens of millions of dollars, so I understand. I get it. We all kind of give those people a little bit of a pass, but Phil Robertson doesn't need that pass. He's just a humble guy. As I mentioned, they're living in the same house. Him and Miss Kay are living in the same exact house they moved back into back in the 70s, like 50 years ago. And with how good Duck Commander has done and Duck Dynasty, the show and the books and, and all the speaking engagements and all the, th- and all the licensing deals and all those things, right? That family has so much money. We didn't talk about it, but I can just read the tea leaves, right? They, they've made a lot of money, but he's choosing to live a humble life. Now, I'm sure he's got his, you know, redneck toys and his backwoods toys and all those different things that that money takes. But 
they're doing something different with their money. And, and I hope to learn more about what they're doing someday. But even just listening to some of his writings, you get the sense that they're giving money to these these charities and they're giving money to individual people to kind of help them, you know, really taking that, you know, first century church thing seriously, that ecclesia type thing seriously, that the Acts church seriously. That's the sense that I get. And you only get that from being a ridiculously humble person, which Phil Robertson is. And the last thing I'll say on this for today is Phil Robertson is marinated in the gospel and the Holy Scriptures. Marinated in it. If you listen to the Unashamed podcast for any length of time, or you listen to him talk in an interview for any length of time, the Scriptures are just there. They're in his head, they're in his heart, and they come out of his mouth. And the interesting thing that I was talking about with Al is, you know, A&E knew that this was a Christian family that they were showing on Duck Dynasty, that they they prayed during the show, but they didn't want to have like, you know, basically a sermon given every episode. But Phil would basically be quoting scripture while just talking in the show, and the, the producers didn't know it was scripture, and those things would make it into the show. He wasn't quoting it as as scripture, like, well, according to John 2, verses 7, like, he, he didn't say anything like that, but he was just speaking truth, and he was speaking the gospel news, the good news, right, and speaking the scriptures, and they made their way into that show. But it was because he was marinated in it, because that's who he is, and you can't just quote scripture like Phil did off air, on air, around people, like, you know, just with me, just being able to quote scripture without spending time in the scriptures. And that, that is also, I've said, you know, I've tried to narrow it down to like one big thing, but that was another huge thing for me is you can't get that way by not studying the Bible. Right. And, and I try to give you guys as many resources as possible. You know, the hundred books, every modern Christian man should read and these devotionals and, you know, I'll link to books and I'll share them on social media and stuff like that. But we don't want to lose sight of the gospel. We don't want to lose sight of where the gospel is housed, which is in our holy scriptures, right? And to know where the scriptures came from, how they got to us from 2,000 years ago in some cases, and maybe even further back, or definitely further back in a lot of cases, right? But it was a great encouragement to me that when I study the Bible, I shouldn't be studying it to read the chapter and just get done so I can check the box for the day but so I can be marinated in it so that I can understand how this is applicable so that I can pull it out when it's necessary, not to win some debate, not, not to prove to somebody how smart we are because we, we memorize something just because it's literally written on our hearts. All right, guys, we're going to do a quick resilience boost before we let you out of here. As you know, by now at Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got the link to the Undaunted Life shop so you can go get your t-shirt or your rash guard. Also, I've got a link to my appearance on the Phil Robertson podcast. And then also it has links to my appearance on the Mike Ritland podcast, the Mike Drop podcast, and also Cooper stuff with John Cooper. Then I've got the Unashamed podcast. So it's going to take you to the Blaze website. So wherever you like to listen to your podcast, you'll be able to get the link there. I highly encourage you to listen to that show. And then also I've got links to the two books I talked about, The Theft of America's Soul and Jesus Politics. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. 
wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and review. That is how this show is going to continue to get out to more guys just like you. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just email me at info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. Check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming. Go to www.undaunted.life. We also want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.